This morning we're continuing our sermon series that we started last week. A picture is worth a thousand words. And uh, we're using different pictures, different portraits of different pieces of art of different kinds to help to illuminate the scripture for each week. And this week our scripture comes from Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. Uh, That's found on page 10 in your pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along. But before I read that to you, I invite you to bow your heads and join me in prayer. Gracious and loving God, We come to you now with open hearts, hopeful to hear your word. We pray by the grace of your spirit that the words we hear and the thoughts of our hearts will lead us to your will for all of us as your church and for each of us as your children. Dear God, we love you. We thank you for your love. Amen. So again, Genesis chapter 15, beginning with the first verse. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Whenever Julianne and I go on a trip, we usually like to make a list of things we want to do while we're away. Whether it's been a place we've been a thousand times or a place that we've gone new for the first time, we always make a list of things that we like to do so that we can, I suppose, use our time wisely. So for instance, a few months back when we went to New York, I made a list and she made a list of of things we each wanted to see. My list included things like, I want to have a hot dog at Coney Island. I want to eat a pastrami sandwich at Cat's Deli. I want to eat an authentic piece of New York, an authentic slice of New York pizza. And I want to have an authentic Irish breakfast on St. Patrick's Day. Julianne's list was a little bit different. She wanted to go to the Museum of Natural History. She wanted to go to the Museum of Modern Art. She wanted to go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Now, don't get me wrong. I like a museum just as good as the next person. I especially like the one with the dinosaurs, whichever one that is. But when it comes to modern art, I don't know a Matisse from a Duchamp. In fact, I'm not even sure I pronounced that right. But we decided to go to the Museum of Modern Art because there was one painting that Julianne wanted to see that I do know, that I did recognize, and it's Van Gogh's Starry Night. It's there at the Museum of Modern Art. I have been reading a little bit about uh, Van Gogh, a wonderful book by a woman named uh, Carol Berry. She's been writing not only about his life, but about his spiritual life as well. She said that Van Gogh used to paint from memory. 
He would see something out in the world and then he would come back to his studio and paint it. And so when you see one of his paintings, it's usually something that he has seen that he has now come back and, and painted from memory. Now, you maybe recognize Starry Night as well. It has been reprinted a thousand times, probably his most faint, famous painting of any kind. It's uh, been reproduced and posterized. People have it up in their dormitory rooms. It might even be a, a, a screensaver on your computer. But I have to say, none of those really do the original justice because Van Gogh painted with so much paint that the painting really pops off the canvas. It almost looks like it's 3D when you see it in person. There's so many globs of paint on it. He painted with so much texture. And those stars that you see up there just really pop out at you. It's wondrous to behold. And like I say, he painted all of these things from memory. And so when you look at the painting, the, the tall cypress trees that are there right in the foreground of the painting, those are like cypress trees that he probably saw in the south of France towards the end of his life. Or the little town and the village there with the, the tall church steeple, that looks like a, a Dutch Protestant church and a, and a little town that um, probably was similar to some of the towns and villages that he saw in the Netherlands where he grew up. And then, of course, there are the stars. And I wonder how many times he stood out and gazed at the stars in the heavens. This is not the only painting where he painted stars. He painted stars two or three other times in two or three other paintings. He seemed to have this real obsession with the, the contrast between the darkness and the light, the, the darkness of deep space and the, the light of the moon and the stars shining brightly. I wonder how many times he stood and stared up in the heavens and stared up in the stars, trying to count them, maybe wishing upon a star, or maybe wondering how deep space can be, or maybe worrying about things going on in the world, maybe doubting, maybe even being afraid. I have to say that that may be a good description for Abraham in our passage this morning from Genesis we know Abraham as Father Abraham, of course, but in this passage, he's still just old Abram, or, or as we know him, Abraham. He's plucked from obscurity out of the middle of nowhere. Abraham was probably, we think of as sort of like a nomadic shepherd. He didn't uh, have any fame of any kind other than the fact that he wandered around with his family like uh, maybe modern-day Bedouins do, and he would take his flock to, to different places where they could graze safely, but he didn't have a town or a home or anything like that. They just wandered around and tried to take care of their flock that way. The only thing that would give Abraham any kind of meaning or purpose and status in life is if Abraham had children who could carry his name on. It was not just about having another mouth to feed, so to speak, but it was about having someone who could carry his name on, carry his stories on long after he was gone so that people would remember who Abraham was. Otherwise, he would fade back into obscurity and be unknown. Well, the good news is, as you know, if the story of Abraham, God promises him exactly that. A booming voice comes to Abraham and, and offers this covenant that we know so well, that God will be Abraham's God and that God will make his name great and that there will be people all over the world who will descend from Abraham, from three great religions, in fact, we know, both Judaism, Christianity, Islam, all claim Abraham as their forefather. That was a covenant that God gave to Abraham, this promise that God made that God would always be Abraham's God and provide for him. 
The problem is that promise doesn't come in chapter 15 that we just read. That promise comes back in chapter 12, three chapters earlier. In those three chapters, Abraham has been wandering around, going to Egypt, doing different things with Lot. He's had several adventures. And now once again, a voice comes to him in a vision and says, Abraham, I will keep my promise to you. You will have many descendants. And Abraham says, hold on one second. Are you sure you're going to keep this promise to me? I've been waiting around for three chapters now. I've been doing lots of different things. I've gotten older. It's pretty impossible for me to have children now. Abraham is doubting God. And that's what happens to us when we have to wait for promises to be kept or prayers to be answered. Abraham, this father Abraham, who is named as the perfect example of faithfulness in the New Testament, several times in the New Testament, right here, he seems a lot more like us. Because in that waiting and wondering and worrying, we start to doubt God at times ourselves. There are times when we have offered our prayers to God and asked over and over again, God, will you please help me give this to me? Help me have some of the things in life that I surely need. Why would you not answer these prayers? And when we wait and wait and wait, we wonder. We get angry. We get worried or afraid and we doubt. And then the moments between the asked prayer and the answered prayer is that life we live of wondering and worrying and waiting. And no wonder, when it seems like those promises are not going to be fulfilled or when it seems like those prayers are not going to be answered, that's what doubt is all about. That's what it means to be human. That's why at times it's very tough to follow God and to follow Jesus Christ. I think I've told you about some friends of mine before who I went to seminary with, dear friends of mine, who after they finished seminary, they were trying to have a child, and it was proving to be very difficult for them. They tried and tried and tried, did everything they could do, went to see every doctor they could see, spent countless amounts of money to, to make that happen, but it just wasn't happening as they had hoped it would. Finally, I remember one day going and sitting down with my friend. They had just gotten more bad news after what seemed like months of bad news. And he had just a few days earlier come from church and he said, Brad, the most heartbreaking thing is this past Sunday in church, the sermon was all about God's faithfulness. And we were singing, great is thy faithfulness as the end, at the end. And I just have to tell you, I couldn't sing that song this Sunday. I have to say I understand where he was coming from. There are times when we just can't sing those songs to God. Instead, we ask our questions to God. We cry out to God in anger and fear and wonder, are you still out there? Do you still hear me? Do you still even know I'm here? That's what Abraham does. But that's why I feel like this passage is so helpful to me personally. Not because Abraham eventually gets all of his prayers answered, but because of the way that God handles Abraham's doubts and Abraham's fears in this very moment. When Abraham cries out to God and says, God, I'm not sure you remember that promise. I'm not sure that you're following along. I'm not sure that you know what I'm going through here. God doesn't get angry. 
God doesn't strike him down with a lightning bolt. God doesn't say, how dare you question me? God says, Abram, go outside and count the stars. Go outside and look at the stars and try to count them. And Abraham starts to count and then he hears this voice interrupting him saying, that's how I'm going to keep my promise. Your descendants will be like the stars. And in that moment, in that very moment, Abraham once again releases control to God and in that moment God says, now you're righteous. He reckons righteousness upon him. But that's what uh, faith is like. It's this ebb and flow between our control and God's control. Grabbing control and trying to do it our way and then releasing control and letting God guide us. Abraham does that as well. If you keep following along in the story, he doesn't stay faithful for long. He tries to grab that control right back, but that's what we all do. In moments when our prayers aren't answered, in moments where we're struggling for our meaning and our purpose, we try to release it to God, and when God doesn't answer prayers as we hope, we try to grab it right back. But it's in those moments of surrender, in those moments of release, that's when God says, this is what it means to be faithful. This is when God says... You are righteous now. Some of you know one of, uh, I'm a big fan of Henri Nouwen, who's a wonderful pastoral theologian and who wrote many, many books before he passed away. But I dare say Henri Nouwen struggled with that ebb and flow in his life. Nouwen, uh, all throughout his life, struggled with his own self-worth. He struggled and wondered if God really loved him. He struggled and wondered about his own meaning and his own purpose in life. This man who was a, a wonderful professor, an ordained minister, who had countless accolades, countless books that he had written all throughout his life, he, he struggled to wonder if he was really meant anything at all to his family, to his friends, and to his God. It was this constant ebb and flow of, of trying to earn people's favor and then releasing it and realizing it never filled that hollow hole in his life. But then one day, a voice came to him, not the voice from God, but maybe a voice of God speaking through a friend of his that said, why don't you do something crazy? Why don't you leave all of that behind and come live with me and my friends at the Larsh community, a community of adults with special needs. Leave all that behind and just come live with them for a while and, and learn from them. And so, in spite of everybody telling him he was crazy, that's exactly what he did. He left all the Yale Divinity School behind, left all of his accolades behind, and went and lived with these people who had no idea that he was Henri Nouwen. They just thought he was Henry. Henry who helped to take care of them. Henry who listened to them. Henry who just loved them for who they are. And guess what? They loved him for who he was. And somehow just by releasing that control, he found that meaning and that purpose that he had been searching for all his life. That worth that he had doubted his entire life, he found just by trusting that God still loved him. Maybe that's why I'm such a big fan of Henri Nouwen, because he lets us know that somehow God can answer our prayers in ways that we least expect. And maybe that's why Henri Nouwen was such a fan of Vincent Van Gogh. Because you see, Vincent Van Gogh had a similar story. Van Gogh grew up wanting to be 
a pastor. He wanted to be a minister. His father was a minister, and that's what he felt called to do. All he wanted to do in his life was to share with other people the grace and the love of God that he saw around him every single day. But when he grew up and it was time for him to go to divinity school, he couldn't understand why he needed to learn Hebrew and Greek. Can you believe that, Trinity? Because all the people around him were speaking German and speaking Dutch and speaking French. And so he decided not to go to divinity school. He went to a missionary school instead, but they, they kind of doubted him as well. They sent him off on a probationary period to work amongst some miners, and he was there for several months. And when they came to, to find uh, Vincent, they couldn't find him because he wasn't preaching from pulpits. He wasn't there trying to teach them about Jesus. Instead, he had adopted their lifestyle. He was living amongst them, bandaging their wounds, helping them with what they were going through. And so when this missionary school came calling, they just thought he was another miner. And they rejected him. Rejected by the church that he had spent his life loving. But that's when Carol Berry says his real ministry started. Because then he learned the language that he was meant to preach through. He learned how to paint. He started painting the things that he saw in the world, the simple things, the simple people like miners and like sowers of seeds and beautiful landscapes and starry skies. Because he believed that it was out there in the world that we see, saw God living and moving and keeping God's promises. He even wrote one time, he said, At night, when all of the sounds cease, God's voice is heard under the stars. I don't know why God doesn't answer all of our prayers the way we want God to. It's certainly true for many of us. It's true for me as well. But righteousness is reckoned on us not when we grab that control back and try to find our meaning and our purpose ourselves, but when we release that control to God and trust that God loves us as God promised God will. So in those moments in your life when you're doubting, when you're afraid, when you're hurting, or when you're angry with God, I hope you know that you have a God who can handle those doubts and those hurts and those fears and those questions. And I would only ask that you go and do exactly what Abraham did. When those doubts come, go outside. Try counting the stars. And imagine once again that that infinite space that was created by God is created by one who loves you infinitely. Count the stars and wait and see. That's what Abraham did. And in that moment, Abraham was reckoned as righteous. May that be so for you and for me. Amen.